You can pray until you faint. But if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Black Power Talks. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our mind 24-7. Black Power Talks brings an African internationalist perspective to the important issues of the world. Today on Black Power Talks, we examine the case of two wrongfully convicted African men and the organized pushback they are waging against a system that stole almost 30 years total from them. The mass imprisonment of African people in the U.S., has been a particular part of the U.S. counterinsurgency campaign to drive African people out of political life. The organization that I lead, International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, was organized in 1991 to defend the human and civil rights of the African working class and bring them back into political life, pushing back against the counterinsurgency. Chairman Amalia Shetela has noted that the United States is not a nation, but it is instead a prison of nations. Similarly, Malcolm X famously stated, if you're born in America with a black skin, you're born in prison. And the masses of black people in America today are beginning to regard our plight or predicament in this society as one of a prison inmate. Now, at the time that Malcolm made those comments, there were a little more than 300,000 people in the US prison system. In 2022, there are almost 2.5 million people in the US prisons and another half million in local jails, half of which are African people. The prison and jail population in the Western region of the United States alone, where both of our guests are located, likely surpasses the US prison population of the 1960s. There are millions more African people on parole and probation. There are more African people in jails and prisons in the United States than in 10 countries in Africa. Shoot. There are more African people in prison in the United States than all people in prison in Russia. The United States prison system plays a significant role in the colonial mode of production. Chairman Omalia Shetela notes that massive prison building projects were established all over the U.S. as white communities vied and fought for prisons to be able to provide colonizer nation white workers well-paying jobs at the expense of tens of millions of colonized African people stuffed into these concentration camps. 
In the United States, Africans are more likely to be incarcerated for the same crimes that whites might never see jail time for. The United States Sentencing Commission found that African men will get about 20% more time than white men when they are convicted of the same crime. In states like Nevada, where one of our guests resides, Black people make up 8% of the state and one-third of the people in prison. White people, however, make up 54% of the state. They're 83% of the people arrested, but only 44% of the people sent to prison. Again, this reveals the colonial nature of U.S. prisons. Whether they work a job or not, the incarceration of African people alone produces wealth for this system. The very similar cases of our guests, two wrongfully convicted African men, evinces the measures through which the colonial state will go to maintain this status quo. Their stories also show the commitment of the formerly incarcerated to clear their names and to fight for their brothers and sisters who are still locked behind bars. Our first guest is Leroy Jones. In 2007, Leroy Jones was arrested for crimes he did not commit without even any material evidence linking him to the crimes he was accused of in the state of Nevada. In 2008, Leroy Jones was convicted of those crimes he did not commit. Leroy was released from prison in October 2022. Our second guess is Omar Jen. In 2008, in Colorado, Omar was arrested for a robbery he did not commit. The police broke all sorts of evidentiary procedures and the state ignored important judicial processes that would have acquitted Omar. Similar to Leroy, Omar was released from prison in October 2022. Uhuru comrades Leroy and Omar, welcome to Black Park Talks and most importantly, welcome home to you brothers. Thank you. I appreciate it. Glad to be home. Uhuru, thank you. Uhuru, uhuru. So, um, you know, before we get into some of the particularities of your cases, let's begin with some background information. Leroy, who are you and how'd you even end up in Nevada? Well, uh, originally from California, um, joined the Air Force in uh, 1998 as a security forces officer. Um, <clears throat> went and did my training in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, ended up getting stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, Nevada. After doing my time in the service, uh, decided to go ahead and stay out here in Vegas because it was much cheaper than back there in Long Beach. Was married, had two kids at the time, and, you know, it was just a better economical decision for me to stay out here. I stayed pretty much in the law enforcement area as far as employment, uh, armed security, uh, executive protection, uh, things of that nature. And as a matter of fact, when this uh, case hit me, I was in the process of becoming a security police officer. I mean, not a security police, but a school police officer. So, you know, I kind of known the inner workings of law enforcement at the time, but even that didn't have make no difference in the situation in my case. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, you know, you noted that you had done security, you had done uh, executive protection and even were on the path to becoming a school police officer. And that didn't even protect you from 
for lack of a better term, the wrath of the state. You know, we've even seen, you know, in places like Chicago and places like that where uh, black men have who were cops themselves, you know, shot by other cops. And um, even in those situations, the cops have been exonerated. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, that is uh, uh, important. But I really so I really appreciate, you know, your background story. You know, um, you know, the, of course, it's a story that I know somewhat well us coming up together uh, in Long Beach, California and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. You had some children. How old are your, chi- how old are your children now? Uh, my oldest is uh, my daughter, Jamia. She's uh, 24. My son, O'Shea, is 22. And my daughter has a uh, three-year-old son. So, oh, wow. so you're a grandfather now. Yeah, I'm a papa. <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So what about you, Omar? Uh, I think you're from Florida. But you ended up in Colorado, actually not too far from Nevada, in fact. What's your story? Oh, my name is uh, Omar Gent, 38 years old, the oldest of three children. Um, I have a younger brother named Denzel and um, younger sister named Sierra. Um, came out here to Colorado after my mother's death, kind of, you know, get a change of scenery. Me and her were very close. She passed away from cancer. And I came out with a, um, my then girlfriend, um, a black woman and her family came out here. Get a, kind of just get a switch after my uh, siblings went, both of them went to college. So I was like, well, might as well get out of Florida because everywhere I went, it reminded me of mom. And um, when I came to uh, Colorado, you know, settled in and, uh, conservative all-white town, basically called Parker, Colorado. He was the only black family on the block in Parker, Colorado. And, um, you know, railroad situation happened to me from, you know, it's crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy that you, you know, you went straight into that. I mean, you know, I think what both of you all really underscore is the fact that in Nevada and in Colorado, you all basically hope for uh, something different. Uh, you know, as a person who's, really studied that moment of migration and things like that, you know, uh, the police forces, the state legislatures and things like that in those states, Colorado, Nevada, uh, actually, are, you know, uh, began to en- enact all sorts of laws and procedures really, really to, um, you know, put Africans in a place as they're moving out there, really almost ensuring the fact that Africans will not find, you know, a better life for themselves uh, when they come to those areas. So I think we should even, you know, maybe we can begin to even talk about the particularities of your stories. You know, I think we can go probably even chronologically, because what strikes me about your stories is the similarities on so many different levels. I think they are less than a year apart. They are geographically very close together. And lastly, even the tricks that the state used to lock you both up are actually very similar. So, Leroy, uh, let us know about your case. All right. Well, in uh, September 20th in 2007, I was arrested for one robbery. I had turned myself in, uh, not expecting much from it because, you know, I knew I didn't do it. So. I didn't really have nothing to worry about. <clears throat> then I want to say about two weeks later, they found 
two other robberies where they said I fit the description of the man that did that. And they put those on me. So I turned myself in and fight one robbery, ended up fighting three. What happened was there is a female that I was messing with during the time. And uh, she walked in on me, you know, engaging with another female. Of course, uh, she wasn't too happy about that. And she was the one that ended up telling the police that I was the one that robbed her and an ex-coworker of mine. So in her statement, she was talking about how I came in, robbed him, and um, with two other individuals with no mask on. Now, mind you, she's telling the police that I, Leroy Jones, ex-military, you know, uh, you know, law for law enforcement experience, went into an establishment with two other individuals who had their faces covered, and I'm the only one with my face uncovered, robbing two individuals that I know know me. That makes no sense at all. But uh, she pushed the story, the police ran with it. And even though it didn't make sense to them, they still just pushed it. Now where it probably became personal to the police is when the detective took me to the interview, um, he was trying to use what we call verbal, verbal judo and I just basically told him, hey, man, you know, that crap is not going to work on me. Um, I have the same experience, the same training. So there's no need for you to even um, come at me like this, because basically, you know, you ain't going to get no different story than what I'm telling you. Well, he ended up getting mad at me and say, you know what, I'm going to make sure that you get found guilty of this. And uh, he was the one that was in charge of the most critical evidence of this case that would have exonerated me. So uh, I basically told him, you know, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you because my fight is not with you. You're going to take me to jail, whatnot. And I'm going to have to fight this in court. So whatever. <clears throat> I go to jail. Um, I get the discovery. Uh, and mind you, before I get the discovery, or excuse me, before I get to arraignment, I did not know who was accusing me of these crimes. I did not know until I got the arraignment and then I got the paperwork and I, and I seen her name and then I seen, and then I understood exactly what was going on. And I told my uh, attorney about it, but <clears throat> that still made no difference because as I would get into later, you know, it turns out that these attorneys are, you know, not on my side as I thought. And me being the first time ever going through a system like this, I did not know. So ignorance of how things worked in the system also uh, paid a part in my demise in this situation. So back to the detective uh, that was angry at me. Well, he was involved. He was in possession of key evidence, which is the video of the September 19th robbery. So that was a robbery I turned myself in. And they put, like I said, they put two more on me, which was one that happened on September 18th and one that happened on September 9th, all in 2007. So here you go. I'm a 30-year-old man at the time. Uh, don't have any type of record that would suggest that I would do something like this. And then all of a sudden, in the span of two weeks, I become a, a robber, just robbing people all over Vegas. Okay. But um, 
like I said, the detective, he uh, he was in possession of video of the September 19th robbery. Now, I worked at these uh, the establishments with the exception of the Super 8. So one was at a uh, budget suites, another one, <clears throat> excuse me, two of them was at a budget suites and one of them was at a Super 8. So I have ties to the two budget suites because I used to do security for them, but I have no ties to the Super 8. So the, the one September 19th robbery had a video and that video we never got a chance to see. So what they did is they uh, developed 10 still photos from the video and used that in place of the video. So the question is, you talk about how you cannot get these video, this video to play because that was their excuse for the reason why they never presented the video. But yet you were able to get it play to get these, still, these 10 still photos off of the video, but you can't get the video to play. Makes absolutely no sense at all. So they had a video from the September 18th robbery and no, excuse me, the September 9th robbery and the September 19th robbery were both at budget suites. Now, mind you, like I said, I've worked at both of them and they both use the same uh, system. And I know this, but they was able to play the September 9th robbery with absolutely no problem. But the September 19th robbery, they couldn't play. So at the September 9th and the September 8th or 18th robbery, and neither one of those videos, you can tell who did what. All you know, all it says is that it was a big black man that came in here and robbed the establishment. But there's no ID that can be made and there's no other identifications of scars or anything like that else that can be made. But on that September 19th robbery, which is a video that is so crucial to all of this, there is a camera that sits at the door of that establishment that catches the headshots of any and everybody that comes in here because there's a casino in there. And so anyone, everybody that comes in here will be on the camera. Well, it just so happened that they printed a still photo of that, of a image from that camera, but it cuts off at the head and it cuts off at the, at the uh, waist. So all you see is basically the chest of the individual. That very next step would have been that headshot that would have been so crucial that could have exonerated me. But they fought to keep the video out and I fought to get the video in and it wasn't until 2012. So I went to trial in 2008, got convicted in 2012. I had a, was able to get an evidentiary hearing. And in 2012, the uh, judge realized that nobody in that courtroom at that point in time had seen that video at all. Nobody. And she, uh, put the uh, put the uh, the hearing off until we got that video. Well, three months went by and uh, they came up with every excuse in the book. The first excuse was the detective had it, but he's retired, so they had to get it from him. The second excuse was that it was in the North Las Vegas evidentiary or evident boat, and then they had to get it from there. The third excuse was, hey, we ain't got it at all. So, Knowing good and well that we was putting in a, a motion for post-conviction, you know, they're supposed to preserve all the evidence. Now, all of a sudden, uh, the video up and disappeared and there's nowhere to be found. So that would have been very crucial for me to get my name cleared because it obviously one of two things would have happened in that video. Either the person's face would have been exposed 
like uh, Jennifer said, which means it wouldn't have been mine, or that person's face would have been covered, which would have been contradiction to what Jennifer said. Either way it goes, it would have helped me and whatever was on that video, they didn't want it to be shown because they kept that video out and they fought hard to keep it out. And still to this day, that video still has not been seen. So that was for the September 19th robbery. For the September 18th robbery, it was done at a Super 8. And it was a Hispanic male was the victim of that robbery. And um, basically, he he said, you know, a black dude came in, robbed him, put him up under the chair, took the money and left. Well, in his situation, there was a 911 recording. And that 911 recording, they specifically asked him, did he have any facial hair? Speaking of the suspect, his response was, maybe he had a scarf around his face. I don't know. That's exact words that were said on the video. I mean, on the uh, recording and the exact words that was heard in the courtroom. Well, because he's a Hispanic and has somewhat of an accent, they try to explain that away and say that he meant to say scar. But in a booking photo of me two days after the robbery, there was absolutely no scars on my face. Nothing, especially nothing that was massive enough for to cover up some type of uh, facial hair that I had. And, um, but that was how they tried to explain it away. So looking at the video on the September 18th robbery, it is clear as day that the guy that did the robbery had no scarf on his face. So this man didn't get a look at him at all because he thought he had a scarf on his face. He didn't have nothing around his face. His face was completely exposed. The camera was able to see his lower chin and that's about it because he had a hat on. So, but you can see that he had nothing covering his face, but yet still they allowed him to use, use his statement as evidence, meaning that this man didn't even get a real good look at this dude. But yeah, he shows up in court and points me on and says, he's hundred percent sure that I'm the man that did it. Then on top of that, before I became a suspect for that particular robbery, there was a written statement that he did. And that written statement came up missing. And in the formal statement that was written, it's indicated that in that somewhere in his statement, he admitted that he could not identify the suspect at all. And as far as the scar thing goes, there was a part in the police report that specifically acts for tattoos, scars, or marks. The officer taking the initial report crossed that whole entire section off because there was none reported. So all this scar stuff to explain the scarf thing that he uh, said initially was all BS. But yeah, all of this is in black and white. All of this is clear as day and can be seen. But it was like it was ignored. Now, with the September 9th robbery, there was a, a woman. She was a, a, a victim of that. And uh, she was the woman that had the best look of every witness in this case. And she even said that the person that came in and robbed her was a good looking man. So this woman got a good look at her or at him. 
And they did a photo lineup with me in it and five other individuals. So she gave a you know general description of what she saw. And when it came down to it, I was pro- I was the only one in that whole photo lineup that actually matched that came close to what she had described. And even with that, she still, she selected my photo and said, well, it looks like him, but I'm not sure. Well, in court, you know, they, this is probably the one thing that my lawyer did that was good. So in court, he went through a detailed way that she had made an identification. And she basically eliminated the other five individuals because either they were too dark too old, too young, too skinny, or whatever the case may be. And she said that she ended up pointing at my picture because, like she said, I was the one that closest resembled the person, but because it was called a suggestive lineup. And even after all of that, initially, she still couldn't identify, positively identify me. But as soon as she came to prelim, I became that individual that robbed her from that point on. So she pointed me out. And say, yeah, he's the guy that robbed me. And from that point on, I became her suspect. So with all of that, and I'm thinking, and this goes back to the ignorance of, you know, dealing with this is that, you know, thinking that all of this evidence and everything that's in my favor and how shaky this thing looked, there's no way I can get convicted of this. But they did it with absolutely no problem. And it was easy. And Basically, like, you know, Omar said, you know, he got railroad. That's all they did. Put me on a big old train and just put me right up under the train and decided not to stop. Oh, oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, We're going to dig a little bit deeper into that as as soon as we come back. Yep. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we're discussing the wrongful conviction and the mass imprisonment of African people with Leroy Jones and Omar Gent. So who, Omar, so your story is uh, in many ways very similar to um, uh, Leroy's. Uh, Can you let the listeners know how your stuff went down? Today I was reading something that talked about, you know, the uh, black codes and the slave codes and how that was able to function because, uh, one of the key elements because black men were seen as uh, dangerous, you know? So, you know, when I think of that, I think of my case and listening to brother Leroy, you know, uh, my case was uh, basically a robbery happened in uh, Parker, Colorado, conservative all white town. Summing up real quickly, my name was mentioned as a suspect of the robbery by a former coworker who I haven't seen uh, over a year at that time. And his exact words to the police where uh, I know Omar robbed the place because it's not that many black people in Parker, you know? So that's all it took for them to uh, start the railroad machine. Police staked outside of my house. I was at home. You know, this had to be like around maybe like 9.30 at, nah, maybe 8.45 at night. Um, it's so long ago. I don't remember that time. Maybe 8.45, 8.30 around that time. And the police took that statement from... Um, this this uh one of the main witnesses who wasn't even present during the robbery, you know, the only person that was present according to the uh, police file was the victim, and uh, it was two other witnesses who I mean how are you gonna be witnesses and you weren't even on the scene of the crime, but people they labeled as witnesses 
who uh, supposedly saw a suspect before he walked in and did the robbery. So one of those people offered my name to the Parker police and they were sitting outside of my home. They had all the opportunity in the world to get a warrant, but they knew they didn't have probable cause, you know? So they was waiting for anybody to go in that house or come out of that house. And uh, I mean, noise to me, when I came out of that house, a Parker, not a Parker police, he was a Denver police officer from a different jurisdiction. Um, he was also, he was moonlighting as a, that's weird. He was moonlighting as a Parker PD employee, but you know, he works for Denver. His name was detective Rodemiker. And, um, he jumped behind my car, used a pretext stop, pulled me over at a gas station, claimed I was speeding. And they pulled me out of the car, basically asked me to step out of the car. Um, asked if he'd go inside the trunk. I told him, no, you need a warrant. Various things. You know, he pulled me outside the car, uh, called the po- other officers on the scene. Um, I see all these cars driving around. I'm like, what's going on? He said, well, you know, you tell me. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I just got in my car. You know, I was actually going to uh, get my ex-girlfriend, my then-girlfriend at the time. I was going to get her some uh, Hagen Dolls ice cream. You know, I got pulled over at the gas station. And I didn't know at the time that the people were in the car were the alleged victim of the crime um, and two of the alleged witnesses. The reason I say alleged because everything is so just outside the procedure of due process. You know, they were just shooting first and asking questions later. So unbeknownst to me, I got this uh, floodlight shining in my face and they were doing a, uh, what they call a one, one-on-one show up. That's when they drive past you and uh, they ask the people, uh, basically, you know, is that the person that robbed you? Still doing a photo lineup. You know, it would have been better if they did much better. They did a photo lineup, you know, took people down to the station, and had a photo lineup or a, um, an actual live lineup. But they knew that the description was all over the place. So, you know, basically those people that uh, so-called witnesses and, and the, um, the victim of the crime, they uh, basically had a long day, long, hard day at work and were being coached by these police officers to identify me as the person who uh, robbed them so they could basically go home, you know. And uh, I went down to the police department. Um, they told me I wasn't under arrest, but I was detained. They went to asking me, uh, telling me, basically telling me that, uh, yeah, you robbed this place. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I asked for a lawyer seven times. So I'm not a profession or nothing. I'm not giving y'all any kind of uh, authority to go into the home because I'm not going to sign any waiver. If you do anything, I'll get a warrant. And I was threatened by Detective Beverly Wilson. She told me that she was going to do what she's going to do anyway. She's going to go in the house. She's going to get a conviction. But she was mad at my whole stance. I was like, I wasn't there. You know, I don't care what you're talking about. You know, you're not going to find me, my fingerprints or anything on the scene of the crime. I was not there. You know, you're trying to railroad me. I need a lawyer. She wouldn't stop the interview and she said, well, since you want to play like this and we're going to go to your house, throw everybody out the home, then we're going to get the warrant after that and watch your whole life fall apart. So I'll stop it right there and see if you got any questions for me, Conrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. I do have some questions. See, I know that the thing is that there's something about the fact that when they put you on trial, they didn't go to a grand jury process. But in Colorado, they're supposed to use the grand jury process. So in many ways, it seems like 
you know, they're using these tricks uh, as well as, um, you know, misidentification uh, to um, get the convictions on both of you guys. First off, Leroy, I want to know, you've done some research on misidentification. Um, how common is misidentification, cross-racial misidentification, as they call it? I can't, I don't remember the actual percentage, but it is known throughout the uh, legal community that cross-racial identification is inherently bad. Um, and that's something that's well known and, and it's something that they seem to ignore. And, you know, because it's, in my case, uh, not now witness was African-American. It was all others. So, yeah, they, it, I can't remember the exact numbers, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's very bad. <clears throat> they right. even suggested. I'm sorry. They even suggested that's not that they should always have some evidence to back up the the um, testimony, if at all possible, because right, it's so bad. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I know that um, most of the overturnings that they have for African people, black people, have to do with you know what are called cross racial uh, misidentifications, which clearly plays a role in your case, Omar, but that's not the only thing that plays a role in your case, right? There's this procedural thing where they literally um, choose not to take the cases of African people to the grand jury. Can you tell us about that and how that affected you? Yeah, yeah, uh, real quickly. Um, it's on my website, uh, freeourbrothers.com, and it explains the basic breakdown of it. And basically, they're supposed to go before a grand jury. It's separate in a trial jury. It's uh in this state, it's twelve citizens who have the duty and uh to examine the prosecutor's felony charge to see if it's enough basic probable cause to move forward. And if they find out it's enough probable cause, they vote to indict. You know, um, if they don't feel comfortable with the case or whatever, they vote a no bill, meaning not to move forward. But in the state of Colorado, uh, where prosecutors uh do, they only use the grand jury in uh. 1% of the felony cases in the state or less, you know, so usually it's the, it's the, it's the mainstream cases that make the, uh, the national, not the national news or the, uh, the local news in Colorado. And they go around it because it saves time and money and they may not have all their ducks in a row. You know, it's a, it's a rush and they file what they call a complaint and information, meaning they act on their own accord. And in this state, a complaint and information is only valid for misdemeanor charges. So I could have been guilty seven times over, but it's the fact that they they violated my right to commit a crime against me by going around the, the due process system, which would have been the grand jury process. And don't get me wrong, sisters and brothers, I'm not saying I'm not praising the grand jury and said it would have saved me or it have been any kind of different outcome had I went through the grand jury process. What I'm saying is in accusing somebody of a criminal act, they become the criminals by going around their own laws that they take an oath to uphold. So that's what that grand jury process is about. And they totally went around it. And um, it's a major lawsuit because uh, each day that I've been held unlawfully, you know, that's a usurpation of my liberty. It was no it was no mistake. It was no uh, accident. You know, they deliberately used force of the law to railroad me to prison and take away my life and so many other brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's basically the gist of your argument, like you said, you're not suggesting that 
their laws is what's going to save you per se. But I do think that it's important that you underscore the fact that they're willing to break even their own laws in pursuit of convictions against African people. Chairman O'Malley Esatella notes that, you know, uh, law itself is simply uh, the opinion of the ruling class. And I think that your case really underscores that, brings that to be uh, absolutely true. That opinion can change however they want. And we also know that these prosecutions themselves, right, the, the use of the law is a political act. It's not simply one about morals. And because of my morals, I think that, you know, sometimes after people assume that this, the, the legal system is based off the same worldview that they hold. And that's, that's uh, not correct, you know. I done some time, about two or three years locked down in a juvenile correctional facility. They try to shake me, break me, but I was a soldier, I wouldn't let them make me. Do what they wanted me to do, the revolution was on in a jailhouse too. See a brother like me with sense, here's a threat to everything the system represents. And they knew they couldn't stop it, I caught a case for a gun and they wasn't gonna drop it. Getting free to me, that was my assignment I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement Many attempts was made to keep me quiet and brought fear to the end to hear a sign of a ride I gave the black power salute to my troops I raised my own side of a ride along Now I know they gonna throw me in the hole I gotta do a couple of weeks in solitary control I've been locked down, shipped around from cell to cell Through my years, no tears fell from these black eyes As they rise towards the ceiling I'm feeling aggressive, capitalism is a cause of my oppression Many times I try to break They say the only one they hear my prayers is me I went to court, I looked in the judge's eyes I saw hate, he tried to fade me He made me a ward of the state Like torture, taking orders from my oppressor 
was the 1992 track Ward of the State by Ascari X. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today we're discussing the wrongful conviction and the mass imprisonment of African people with Leroy Jones and Omar Gent. Now, um, it seems really like every month, possibly every week, I'm reading news stories about People have been wrongfully convicted, getting their cases overturned. And now I can't knock it or nothing, but, you know, for every person who is um, released and get their case overturned by one of these innocence projects, there must be scores, if not hundreds more, who never even get a shot to get their cases heard by the innocence project. So, can y'all let me know, you know, how hard is it to get your case hurt by one of these innocence projects? Well, I guess they, um, uh, go ahead. Oh. Go ahead, brother Leroy. Go ahead. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so as I said, I got arrested. This, this stuff started in 2007. So I was convicted in 2008, went to prison that year, 2008. From the moment I got convicted, I have been writing different organizations. I wrote the NAACP. I wrote uh, Al Sharpton's uh, Action Network. I wrote uh, Charles Barkley. He had uh, uh, something going on. I wrote him. I wrote the ACLU. I wrote uh, Centurion Ministries out there in New Jersey. And I mean, in Princeton. Yeah, I think that's in New Jersey. The response I got from them was either, no, we can't help you, or even from uh, the NAACP and uh, uh, not the, excuse me, uh, Al Sharpton's Action Network, the guy that called me, he called my uh, my homeboy Jarrell, and he had an attitude. Like he, you know, he really didn't want to do what he was supposed to be doing. Like he didn't want to hear what I had to say. So I wrote the Innocence Project, Rocky Mountain. And initially they, they basically told me that I had to wait until I was done through in the courts before they can hear my case or anything like that. And so I didn't get done to in the courts until 2013. So I wrote them, applied for them, and they flat out denied me initially. It wasn't until I met Maisha Kadumu, who called them 
and asked them to, you know, consider my case again, that they sent me another application. Um, and I want to say that was in 2019. Uh, they sent me another application and they went on ahead and uh, looked at it. And then they finally accepted my case in uh, 2020, August of 2020. And so from August of 2020, October 2021, they decided to come down and interview me. And so they finally decided to, uh, or they're currently investigating my case right now, even though I'm out of prison. But it took, what, majority of the time that I was in prison for me to even, you know, for somebody to even listen. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for that. And as a person who had a front row seat, I surely... uh... Uh, know uh, the length of that time. Is, is there anything on that you want to say, Omar? Man, uh, y'all gonna have to forgive me because I'm gonna be. Uh, <laughs> this still therapy. This is therapy, brother. Uh, hey, those those innocent projects, in my opinion, they differ because from state to state, it depends on who's in the institution, right? You know, uh, some state may have more conscious people, more radical people. But, the, you know, the people that control the money are going to control the agenda of the group. And more than likely, they're being funded by people who don't want to be seen as being too radical against against the criminal justice system. Or they want you to have a spotless record, you know, far as no misdemeanor arrest. Uh, they also they're very afraid of uh, big money, big money donors or the tough and cr- tough on crime crowd. Uh, persecuting them, you know, for taking a stance. Also, I, I find out a lot of them, again, it is just, just different from state to state with the NAACP, Innocent Projects and everything. But I found from my studies, a lot of people only want to deal with you when you're talking about DNA. Because DNA, I mean, sometimes as sketchy as that is, it's an argument where you're not bringing up the facts of the case or whether the person, you know, uh, was on the scene of the crime or not. You know, in a lot of cases, it's just about the DNA. You know, so, uh, yeah, the Innocent Project, to me, it, it's a, uh, like the brother said, it's, it's, it's a continued process of just reaching and writing letters. It's not easy. Uh, one person said to me, I'm going to wrap it up. One person said to me, he was an uh, African person. He said, well, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. He said, well, for one, it's not that many black people in prison. And he said, number two, the Innocent Project would get you out immediately. I almost fell out laughing. You know, that's not the case. So, you know, these type of organizations, they have politics behind them, a lot of uh, concerns when it comes to the political nature of the pushback that they may face. And uh, so it's it's not what people may think. I mean, what you see on TV is a tip of the iceberg. Right, right. That's, I think, the point that I have discovered myself. This is a contradiction I was suggesting certain liberal reformisms is the fact that if they're not attached to something radical, some uh, an understanding that this whole system needs to be overturned and we start anew, then that program, even if it is getting people out, can be actually serve as a vindication for the program, right? We're just getting out the ones who don't deserve to be in there, but everyone else deserves being there type deal. So, so I'm really happy that in an honest way, you all are, are pointing this out. And this is about the people, like you said, who are running these programs, uh, not using it, of course, as an indictment of any of the brothers and sisters who, who, who have gotten out. Now, because of that, 
you know, you all have, and the people have held you down, have had to do this on your own. Let us know a little bit about that process. And I know that African women play an important role in this process as well. Let's lift up some of them as well. I'd like to shout out to all of the black women out there, the African women, you know, who hold us down. You know, y'all are the mothers of civilization, the backbone of the movement. Um, my, my wonderful fiance supported me through us and downs. It's, it's been a stress and strain on our relationship being literally thousands of miles away from each other, but we grow together, learn together. Uh, my sister, um, various women in the community, women I've come to develop relationships with. Um, it's wonderful. It's nothing in the world like an African woman, you know, the, the mothers of, of creation. You know, thank you for your strength. Uh, I know y'all don't get recognized a lot. Thank you for your effort, your hard work. And, um, you know, your, your tears are felt. I can't, I can't relate wholeheartedly being a man, but your tears are felt. Your sacrifice is felt. I want to say thank you. I, I do ditto exactly what he just said. Um, you know, for me, is you know, Maisha has been a, a rock for me. You know, it's because of her that, you know, these people decided to want to finally listen to me. Um, you know, she, she, as you know, Mr. Odom, <laughs> uh, you're the one that, you know, put us together. Um, you know, now we're married. Uh, she stayed with me the, the whole last three and a half years of my bid. Um, I did a total of 15 years and 24 days. She was there for the end of it. Uh, from the time that she jumped in, you know, she jumped in head first and was, you know, doing everything she could in her power to get my story out there from Facebook, uh, you know, articles. Uh, she did everything she could to and spoke to any and everybody that would listen. And uh, so she did her thing. And I truly appreciate that. And that's, one of the things I always talk to her about uh, how strong black women are and how they are so ignored, but they are important to us, period. You know, they always say in every, behind every great man is a, a powerful woman, but I, I would like to say on the side of every great man is a powerful woman. I think we do better walking together as opposed to one in front of the other. So, uh, I was raised by my grandmother. Uh, so in my family, all I know is powerful black women. I know nothing else. You know, I didn't have a father uh, growing up, but I always had powerful women to look at and, and, and imitate. So my grandmother, she gave me what she felt was a black man's place in this world and that's exactly what i follow so yeah um like he said uh they're beautiful very powerful oh, oh now Leroy, this fight ain't over what's the way forward now that you've been released well uh as i said the innocent project they're still investigating um they're fighting for that video and the missing statement but uh until that happens um i'm i currently finally uh Got my start date for my electrician school that I'll be starting on the second week of January. There's a, the VA uh, put me in a program that allowed me to get my education paid for. So they'll be paying for my education. So I'll become an electrician. Um, currently, I am 
working, you know, just to help around in the house and, and move forward from that point. But I also want to, you know, get into advocation for the things that I dealt with in prison, specifically the, as I told you before, the uh, medical co-pays that they've been charging us and how they've been robbing us and taking money from us when they wanted to, and then not giving it back, even though we proved that they shouldn't have taken it. So uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what the things that I'm trying to do and how, and as soon as I find out exactly how to do it, I'm, I'm on it. On a similar level, Omar, uh, you've started Free Our Brothers. Can you tell us about the Free Our Brothers campaign and where can people find out more? Yeah, I'm, I'm about to run out of time. Uh, the freeourbrothers.com. Uh, that's freeourbrothers.com. You can Google that. Um, check that out. Please sign a petition. Um, also, I post my uh, new moves on Facebook, Omar Gent. That's Facebook, Omar Gent. And the plan for it to continue working with your uh, wonderful organization, brother. I appreciate you a lot, man. Over 14 years, you know, it, it was hard finding people that have the ability and the courage and, the, and it's the willpower and the resolve to help bring these stories forward. So thank you very much. That's, again, Facebook, Omar Gent. Please stay in contact and IG at Free Our Brothers. And the website is freeourbrothers.com. Uhuru. Uhuru, uhuru. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. The fight is not over. That's freeourbrothers.com. As we approach this holiday season, I know that the holiday season isn't easy for brothers and sisters inside. So are there any shout outs that y'all like to give uh, for people who you want to hold down? And shout out to all y'all on this platform, brothers and sisters on this platform and beyond. To the brothers that's incarcerated, you know, your brother Omar is not, forget, not forgetting you. I'm not too big on on certain holidays, but, you know, every day is a holiday of love and appreciation for all my brothers and the struggle, all my brothers and sisters. Much love. Yeah, uh, to all my brothers uh, that I left at uh, Three Lakes in Southern Desert and Nevada Department of Corrections. Uh, I told you guys, you know, when I get out, that I'm not going to forget you. And I'm definitely going to put my foot in the sand or I'm going to put my foot in the ground and uh, try to help get some of the things turned around based on the experiences that I had in there. I'm going to keep my word and, uh, you know, just keep your heads up in there. I know it's not easy. Trust me. <laughs> I've been there, but uh, there is a better, there is a, <clears throat> there is a future for all of us and I'm going to still fight. Oh, oh, well, Leroy, Omar, I really want to thank you all for coming on. You know, it's not enough time, but I really felt it was important for both of your brothers to be on to tell you very similar stories at the same time. Uh, we're going to have to have you all back on to hear updates around your campaigns for your brothers, uh, your very important campaign that you have uh, just getting off the ground, really uh, looking at the way through which um, the medical uh, overbilling it's just another way through which they continue to take uh, the money away from the incarcerated people. A whole other sort of way for us to uh, understand the colonial mode of production in relationship to uh, prison. So I just really want to thank you both for coming on to Black Power Talks. And uh, this won't be the last time uh, that uh, our listeners hear from you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you giving me a chance. You have been listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, 
Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we discuss the mass incarceration of African people and the pushback being organized by the formerly incarcerated. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was written and produced by Elika Ngoma. Thanks to the Black Power Talks production, research, and promotions team. Uhuru. You can pray until you faint. If you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Do something! Do something!